happy Saturday. It's July 22nd, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, still in the great American heartland. Oh, I wouldn't have you any other place. There's nothing cornier than Kansas in August, July. And I'm Michael Haney here in New York City. Ashley, how are things back home? Pretty great, Michael. I mean, look, we've got one thing here that you don't have in New York. That's called the Megaplex, my friend. And in the summer of hot movies, we have Barbie this week. We've got Mission Impossible. We've got Oppenheimer. Like, there's frankly nowhere else I'd rather be. Sitting in an ice-cold theater with a large tub of popcorn. How's the city? Perfect. I want to hear all about that when we get to recommend towards the end of the show, because I'm sure we've got a lot of things to discuss there. Inevitably, Michael. Inevitably. Because we do have a great show this week. It's filled with great guests and stories. We've got James Fox, who's going to take us back to the swinging 60s and explain how horses, of all things, brought together everyone from the Rolling Stones to the biggest names of British society. Then, speaking of society, Alexander Marshall will join us from France, where she has a report on the rise of a man many there can Consider the Rupert Murdoch of French media. And finally, Beatrice Borromeo will join us from Italy with the shocking story of the prince who got away with murder. So Ashley, where would you like to begin? Click your heels three times and where would you like to go? I think we should start with Alex Marshall and the, the new alt-right journalism situation that's shaping up in France. Alex is a writer at large for Airmail. She is now based in Le Perche in Normandy after living in Paris for many years. And we're very happy to have her here. Welcome, Alex. Hi, nice to see you guys. Okay, Alex, now we have a situation going on in France in which, as you posit it, imagine if Rupert Murdoch had tapped Steve Bannon to run USA Today. So who is this guy, Vincent Bolloré? Well, he's a press baron, but that's not his main source of income. He's an industrialist who's made a lot of money in palm oil, paper manufacturing, logistics, port management in Africa and media. And he has, in the last 10 years, amassed an incredible portfolio of media properties, which includes the mega company Vivendi, the TV channel in France, Canal Plus, which you have seen as financer of most of the good French movies and TV shows that have broken out internationally. He has the TV channel Say News, which he actually created in the mode of Fox News. He has the TV channel Europe One, Elbon. And he has Gala, one of his Paris match. He has, I'm trying to think of the other newspapers. If there's a newspaper. It's just, it's a massive conglomeration. And now the Journal de Dimanche, which is the question of the day. And so the Journal de Dimanche is a weekly newspaper that comes out on Sunday, Dimanche. And it's known for having very kind of an access journalism, sort of interview-based weekly that basically everyone reads. So it's USA Today, but maybe in that it's kind of ecumenical and not super ideologically oriented, but it gets everyone. So the Journal de Dimanche was bought by Bolloré, and he announced that he was going to install as the new editor-in-chief the head of a very, very extreme right magazine in France called Valeurs Actuelles, which has had, like, you can't imagine more pictures of veiled women on the cover. It's been condemned in French courts twice for open racism. But the editor-in-chief in question, his name is Geoffroy Lejeune, was actually fired from this magazine because he was too far right even for them. So this is the person that Vincent Bolloré, who has been compared by many to Rupert Murdoch, has decided to install at the head of this super mainstream, national, important news magazine. People are freaking out. Okay, so how is this strike playing out in Paris, Alex? And how much power do these journalists actually have? These journalists have more power than you might think. 
simply because of the order of events. So this isn't the first time Bolloré has bought a legacy media property and put his own people in charge. So this was already scandalous in the eyes of a lot of people in France who are conscious, as we all should be, of who's owning their media and what their agenda is. And so when Journal de Dimanche went on strike, everybody paid attention. And in the meantime, there have been senatorial inquiries on consolidation in media because most of French media is owned by a small group of very rich people, in- including Bernard Arnault, who owns the papers Le Parisien and Les Echos. At one point, Pierre Berger was a part owner of Le Monde. Like, it's a long, it's a long story in France. So people have been worried about this for a while. And with Bonnore and the Journal de Dimanche, it was kind of like, this is just one toke over the line. So Congress has met to propose laws to try to control the power of media owners and shareholders to impose editorial changes on existing newsrooms. In France already, Le Monde, the main newspaper of France, the most kind of the New York Times of France, or Le Monde has this, Le Libération has this, which are agreements that the editors get a vote on who becomes the new editor-in-chief in change in case of a change of ownership or whatever, the whims of the market. They get a say. So what Le Journal de Dimanche has kind of tipped off is a movement for all French media who takes any kind of state money at all, which means preferential postage rates for sending newspapers and magazines, which means lower payroll taxes, which some French media organs get. So anybody who wants the goodies from the government has to play ball and sign on, if this law passes, to saying that 50 or 60 percent of the newsroom gets gets to vote on whoever becomes their new boss. It's a way of maintaining journalistic independence in the face of consolidation that's way scarier than what's going on in America. France doesn't have a First Amendment, so legalistically, it's not this, we couldn't apply what they do in America because we have different restrictions over controlling information and speech. But they're really trying to take a really surgical approach on the political level to look at their laws, to look at their ownership structures, to look at how employees and employers interact, and to try to to put into place something that will will at least staunch the kind of crunchy, capitalistic consolidation trend that we're all seeing all over the Western world in media, where state-owned media isn't the order of the day. Well, it's a fascinating story, Alex. Well, thank you for being here. And um, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Alex. It was great talking to you guys. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thanks for the story. Talk to you soon. God, it's like, you know, just when you think Rupert Murdoch is the most insidious person in media, it turns out he has competition. Yeah. And just when you think it's like, you know, can't get any cookier over there in France and the challenges from Macron. There you go. Hot summer. No kidding. Well, speaking of shifts in society, let's go back to a more free form, but a little more nostalgic time. It's it's the UK in the swinging 60s. And we've got James Fox here to talk about how a man who bred horses in Ireland brought together the great cross section of rock and roll from the Rolling Stones to the high end of British society all over horses. James Fox is a London-based journalist, author, and the co-author of Keith Richards' memoir, Life, as well as the David Bailey memoir, Look Again. So please welcome James Fox. Okay, so James, this incredible set of photographs has been displayed recently at the New Horse Gallery in Dublin. Tell us a little bit about why they're so special. They're special because they're so varied and they come from a a particular moment in the 60s or just post-60s. They're a reflection of that moment when 
everything got mixed up when I call it the kind of gypsy baron period because it's when the aristocrats and the rock and rollers and everybody kind of joined up and it became a bit of a social revolution. It's the kind of world that David Bailey was was taking pictures of at the time. And it was an exciting moment. I'm old enough to remember it, almost. And these pictures were taken by Julian Lloyd, who was in the middle of that world, in a way, uh, but all in Ireland. So it gives it an extra edge. Can you tell us a little bit about Lloyd and how he came to be kind of like, in some ways, it seems like he's kind of like the Rick's Cafe in Casablanca. Everyone eventually comes through his world, right, in, in the 60s. How, who is he and, and how does he attract all these people? Well, it's Ireland and it's horses dressing up. Rick's Cafe was his stud, which he was the stud manager of this place in Ireland. But the fact is, he went to Eton. And after that, he kind of did a little bit of dropping out, a little bit of journalism, which is sometimes the same thing in those days, and got involved with horses and everything. And he was a great friend of this guy, Mark Palmer. Mark Palmer was the page to the queen, but he was also a complete kind of dropout of his own way. He described at that time how he walked out of the exams at Oxford. It was a lovely day. He actually said, the sun was shining outside the window, so I split, which was the phrase of the time. And he went and started just getting into carts and caravans and horses and just driving about. And it attracted a lot of attention and everything. So Lloyd became part of that world. And he spent most of his life actually rearing these horses on this stud farm in Ireland, particular stud farm which has wonderful grass for raising foals. And foals so great that one of his foals last year won the greatest horse race on the calendar, which is the Prix de Lac de Trion. Meanwhile, all this time, he was taking pictures from the age of 15 and pictures of his friends, pictures of Dublin, pictures of this and that, and pictures of his kind of rock and roll other world. There was a recording studio in Dublin which attracted a lot of people, and he took pictures of all those guys. But... They were people like Marianne Faithful, the Stones, God knows who. They all came to Dublin eventually. Jerry Lee Lewis, Bo Diddley. And then he took pictures of people like actors, like John Hurt, uh, J.P. Dunleavy, the writer. It was an incredible mixture, but it was highly concentrated because of this small geographical area and his eclectic interests and friendships. He just had this touch. And because it was Ireland, it had this extra kind of magic. His photographs are filled with other characters, actors and priests and horse dealers and God knows who, eccentric aristocrats and lots of ruined castles in the background. They have a particular character to them, but they also have that sense of that explosion that happened in the early 60s about them somehow, which is what attracted me to them when I wanted to write about them. James, you have this wonderful quote from the actor Peter Iyer, who once told you, quote, if you weren't really a part of the 60s, if you weren't at Tara Brown's 21st birthday party, <laughs> what was that scene like? Well, that is because that was the actual epitome of the kind of mixture of all these people. You have to remember the class system and the sort of social level was very rigid at that time. You know, people didn't mix much. You didn't know people from other classes. You didn't go to their parties. And then there came rock and roll and drugs and everything else and mutual attractions. And Tara Brown, who was a Guinness heir, had a 21st birthday party on their estate in Lugala in County Wicklow. And this was 1966. And he was cool enough to know the loving spoonful 
band and to bring them over to play at his party. Imagine that in the middle of Ireland. So this was very, very famous. And I've said that it was almost like a kind of revolutionary act. Guests were flown in. Uh, Brian Jones was there taking acid. And he was the guy that was killed in his car crash shortly after that. And the Beatles sang about that in their song, A Day in, in the Life, you know, the one that starts, I read the news today, oh boy, that was him. So you can see this is getting up in the kind of big social area where people were mixing for the first time. And actually, and it was quite unpopular as well in a way. All these people, these people who've been to public school and everything, they were experimenting with difficult, dangerous drugs like acids. You know, they were jumping off cliffs in a way and making all these friendships. And it took a bit of nerve, I think. I'm rather impressed by these guys. <laughs> they did quite well. What was the phrase you used a moment ago, the, the, the gypsy? Gypsy barons, yeah. Well, it was actually, I made that up for them because there was this mixture. You got Mark Palmer. There's a photograph Julian Lloyd took of Sir Mark Palmer. He's standing on a cart holding the reins of a piebald pony, driving it down the road of a street in Appleby. Appleby was the gypsy fair. It was gypsies only. And there's Mark Palmer. And he knows exactly what he's doing. That's all about horses. So he's a sort of honorary gypsy. And it wasn't put on. It wasn't an affectation. That's what he really loved. It was a part of the sort of dropping out thing too. And he dealt in horses. I, I don't know whether he dealt with a queen in horses, but he told me that he sold queen a horse once. I didn't actually believe that. I thought that was bragging. But he was a character. And it was quite a big sort of movement around him of the fact that things had just decontracted and relaxed. Although I think... So Gypsy Barons was really that, the fact that you had these people who could move between these worlds for the, for the first time. And she's married, Julian Lloyd, to Victoria, who was Victoria Ormsby Gore, these three sisters who were the daughters of Lord Harlick, who'd been the ambassador in Washington, friend of Jackie Kennedy. In fact, he proposed to her later after both her spouses had died. They broke all grounds because they might have been you know, grand debutants put out in season as it was. But they weren't. They were kind of much more evolved than that. Um, well, one was Eric Clapton's girlfriend. One, as I said, married Julian. They they were an epitome of the sort of way things had changed, basically. Yeah, to make another analogy, remind me of it's a little bit of here in the US, they had the black and white ball with bringing together uptown and downtown. And this is, seems like a long running, swinging 60s moment of rock and roll meeting society and, and sort of going on for a few years. They're out in the countryside and everyone kind of, all these rock and rollers buying their English piles and getting into the, the gentry life, but in a very different way, right? Yeah, well, it's very similar. I don't think it lasted very long, this thing. I mean, there was, David Bailey, who I've also written, I've helped him with his memoirs, he said that really the 60s were only a, a maximum of 150 people, rather like Tara Brown's 21st birthday party. Or maybe it started with even 15 people, and most of them used to end up at a place called the Ad Lib Club in London. And Bailey told me that one day he was standing on the roof of the Ad Lib Club, which is where everyone went to smoke their joints. And John Lennon said to him, I must have made it. I'm standing on the roof of the Ad Lib Club, smoking a joint with David Bailey. Here I am, kind of thing. I've made it. It was a small group of people, but they had a huge influence at the time. It was a moment when people were, get, were getting famous for actually what they did, not just what they were, for being actors or musicians or writers, filmmakers. It exploded in this extraordinary way. And people were making large amounts of money doing it. That had never happened. So it brought England out of this sort of rigid kind of shame-based world of 
post-war gloom into something that's really unfamiliar. A lot of people didn't like it. I was shouted at once in the streets of Manchester wearing a pink Brooks Brothers shirt, and someone screamed at me, flower child. Will the photographs travel anywhere else? Will they be, be able, any of our listeners be able to see them anywhere else? Not, I don't think at the moment. And it's a very, very early in Julia's career. I mean, he only just brought these to the light of day with a, with a fanzine, you know, the other day, which is where I first saw I have known him for some time, but I'd never seen the whole collection. And I think they will. And he's got lots more. And I think that this will definitely play. It's also, it's a piece of social history that is extremely rare, really, because it's got such scope to it. It has a little echo of, of other photographers of the period, like Michael Cooper, who's a bit older. But it's got more variety and it's got, well, it's more, it's more kind of, as it were, it's based in some sort of weird pre-Raphaelite world, given all those Ormsby Gores. The idea of Jane Ormsby Gores suckling her child at Carnarvon Castle during the investiture Prince Charles has got a little bit of a Burne Jones air to it. And I think there is an element of that. It's slightly airy, fairy, mystical stuff. Dogs and horses. They're all the witches' accomplices, really. There is a season of the witch going on there. So if you remember that marvelous song by Dog. Yeah, or if there's a bustle in your hedgerow, don't be alarmed now. Yes. It's a brilliant piece of writing this week, James, and we're so grateful to you for sharing your context for it in the story this week and some of the photographs there, but to, and to hear you give this extra context to the world that you saw and we're a part of. It's, it's really beautiful. Thank you. And for our listeners out there, you can see some of these great images in this week's issue of Airmail. Well, actually, let's go from the swing 60s in the UK to Italy in the summer of 1978 and the incredible story of how Italy's last heir to the throne, Vittorio Emanuele de Savoia, shot and killed a young man named Dirk Hammer and then got away with his murder. It's all the subject of a brilliant new documentary on Netflix called The King Who Never Was. And this week we have its director, Beatrice Borromeo, to tell us all about it. Welcome, Beatrice. Thank you so much for having me. So your new three-episode documentary on Netflix is called The King Who Never Was, and it tells the story of a prince in exile and his complicated relationship with some friends of yours, in fact. So tell us about your friend Birgit Hammer and the story of her brother Dirk. Birgit Hammer used to be a student in Rome in the 70s, and when she was there, she met my mother. They became quite good friends. And after Dirk was hit by the prince Vittorio Emanuele di Savoia, in 1978, the relationship grew much stronger. My mother went to Germany, where she was uh, assisting her brother while in hospital to take Birgit away from that uh, pain, if you will. And they went to live together in Milan. And then when Dirk died, it was up to my mother to actually organize the funeral because the family couldn't quite cope with the, the enormity of what had happened. So I think that that was very traumatizing for my mother as well, being very young at the time. And it became something very present in our lives when I was growing up because Vittorio Emanuele didn't stand a trial for a long time. And then when he did, he was acquitted after three days only. Beatrice, tell us exactly about how Dirk died and how Vittorio Emanuele was involved in that. Vittorio Emanuele is the last heir to Italy's throne. He grew up until the age of nine to be the next uh, heir to the throne of Italy, but Italy became a republic in 1946. 
And because the Savoia people, the king of Italy at the time was the grandfather of Vittorio Emanuele, and he was a big supporter of Mussolini and uh, of the fascist and therefore Nazi regime. He had to give the throne to his son, Umberto, who reigned for only one month in the May of 1946 before asking for a referendum if people wanted them to stay or not, and people voted them out. Vittorio Emanuele was only nine years old at the time. And I think that for him, it's quite interesting how he used to see the Italian people parading in his honor when he was a child, trying to touch him, trying to get a picture with him. And suddenly they kicked him out and completely refused any relationship with him, even though he was a child only at the time. He wasn't allowed to go back until 2002. And I think that in that exile that lasted 56 years, he developed quite a frustration and an anger towards the Italian people. And that's partly why probably when this group of Italian teenagers uh, slash uh, early 20s, in their early 20s, people went to Cavallo, this little island where he bought his summer house to visit, to party, to also see him. They say, they admit that they went also because the island was famous for being the kingdom of the Savoia province. He became very upset right at the beginning. He was annoyed. They were loud. They were many. They were not respecting his territory, if you will. At some point, there was a bit of a twist. The group wasn't allowed to go back to Sardinia, where they came from. So the nearby island in Italy because the weather turned. So they were forced to stay in the island and find uh, something to eat on the local restaurant. To go there, they decided to take a tender that was attached on a boat nearby. No one was on board and they didn't know that the tender belonged to Vittorio Emanuele di Savoia's son, that at the time he was six years old. That was probably the moment in which uh, Vittorio Emanuele was so enraged when he found out that they also took the tender without asking it, that he went back home, took a rifle, took another, a second tender, joined the group on the boats and uh, started yelling, bloody Italians, I will kill you all. One of them came out to confront the prince to see what was going on and two shots were fired one in the air and the second one who went through two boats and took Dirk, who was asleep on a boat nearby, in the leg and basically um, breaking the femoral artery. So Dirk started to really deteriorate quite fast and the group couldn't really leave the island because it's impossible. It's like a death trap at night. It's full of rocks just below the water. And you have to imagine in the 70s, there were no big lights. It was very hard for them to leave. And uh, I actually interviewed in the documentary, this guardian of the island who told me that they knew that Dirk was in that state. And uh, he, along with Vittorio Emanuele, went to call the local doctor, who, by the way, and this is not even in the documentary, when he was woken up, said, oh, this must have been the prince because the prince had a hobby for fire weapons. And a couple of days prior to this incident, he had shot next to his sister-in-law and sh she had fainted. And so he knew that there was this thing going on. So the prince took the doctor to the boat without going on board, of course. And the doctor told them that they had to take him immediately to the hospital. But right then they all left. No one knows why the guardian, the doctor and the prince, they all left. 
until morning, so a couple of hours later. Then the Guardian went back and helped the group to join uh, Porto Vecchio, which is this little town, uh, 20 minutes by boat, but they needed his guidance to be able to exit the island. Dirk died after 111 days, but his leg was amputated the day after the shooting. And the prince went to jail for a couple of months. He took responsibility for everything that happened right until just before Dirk died. And then everything changed. It's very sudden. Basically, what happened is that the Guardian, during his inspection of the boats, found a second weapon on board that belonged to one of the Italian people on board. And uh, even though that weapon had nothing to do with anything, because there are 30 witnesses who never talked on a trial, but they did talk with me. So they are on air in the documentary. And they invented this theory that a second shooter had actually shot at Dirk. And so suddenly all of this evidence that we had, that they had, start disappearing. Even a judge that was investigating the case was transferred to Tahiti. I actually found him for my investigation and he got really scared and refused to talk. And then nothing, the defense of Vittorio Emanuele started saying that he was innocent, in fact. And then a long chain of events brought, there was like a very long procrastination. Nothing happened for so many years. Birgit completely changed her life looking for a trial, looking for justice, asking for justice. And it took her 13 years to get a trial. But what were some of the challenges that you faced as a journalist as you were trying to piece this story together? Many challenges, to be honest, because first of all, I wanted this story to be fair, to be told in a fair way. And I had a lot invested personally because it was a family matter for me in a way, because Birgit, I consider her as an aunt and her daughters are like little sisters to me. And I could see their pain growing up for so many years. It was just very personal to me. When I was a reporter, I did find the a videotape of the prince confessing to actually be the responsible person for Dirk's death after denying it for 40 years. He confessed by mistake to some cellmates while he was imprisoned for another matter. And I managed to find the videotape of that confession and to publish it. And I remember when I did that, I was so angry about the injustice and the impunity, because even though there was a confession, nothing could be done about the trial because of the double jeopardy system in Europe. So I was very upset. And I think that it came through in my articles. And it's really not how I wanted to do my job. But it took me a little time to get the proper distance to be able to know that I could interview him being really non without prejudice and being actually fair. But he obviously didn't know that I was <laughs> willing to do that and that I actually wanted to find uh, as many moments of empathy with him as possible. So to give a better portrait of who he is as a person and not just what he did. And uh, so it took me a very long time, a very long time to convince him to give me these interviews and also to convince everyone who was there that night, you know, all the witnesses to participate. And there's been so much chatter about the documentary in the wake of its release. Have any of the critiques or comments surprised you? To be honest, it surprised me to have so many good reviews because in the back of my head, we knew we were telling not just a true crime story, 
but something that in our minds was going well beyond that because we did this amazing journey with the new generations, with the son of Vittorio Emanuele and with the daughters of Birgit who decided to face this past tragedy that they sort of inherited. They inherited this pain that didn't belong to them, but that affected their lives so deeply. So doing it with me meant that the story was to be considered dealt with. So it was very brave uh, from all of them. And I think that they all could find closure in the end, which was very beautiful to witness. Thank you so much. This is an incredible story. It's an unmissable documentary that you all should watch on Netflix right away. In fact, stop listening to this podcast right now. And we look forward to speaking with you again soon about hopefully another story for airmail. Thank you so much. Ashley, it's the weekend. Okay, Michael, we do have to talk about Barbie. I just saw it tonight and I was totally moved by it in all the right ways. I thought it was just from soup to nuts. It was really well done. And I think what I liked about it is it's not really just a movie about what it means to be real. It's also about what we lose and gain by making that choice, by feeling. And I think that's not really the only contrarian point in the film. In fact, it's riddled with those kinds of moments in a really great way. What the director Greta Gerwig does so subtly is she uses Barbie as a tool to challenge many of our assumptions about what we think we already know. She is and isn't what we would expect her to be. And she seems like such a throwback. But in fact, you leave the movie thinking that there's never been a better time a more appropriate time to give Barbie her due. And that's what I loved about this. It really is kind of the perfect moment for the moment that we live in. Anyway, I highly recommend it. I can't decide who loved it more, whether it was me or my eight-year-old daughter, but um, it really wasn't for her, but she got it anyway. But um, it's I think it's really a movie for adult women who are grappling with what it all meant, right? The universe that we grew up in and how do we make sense of it now? And I think the movie does a really great job of giving some context and insight into that. Barbie, directed by Greta Gerwig, starring Margot Robbie... And incredibly, Ryan Gosling. Have you seen MI3 or MI Infinity, whatever it's called? I have. And have you seen it? Of course. I will say, I love the film. The woman next to me was on the edge of her seat for the last 45 minutes and truly like hands to the face leaning towards the screen. And no spoiler here, but for me, like those last 45 minutes were a tour de force of action making movies. I think it's a movie everyone should see in a theater. It's a movie made for theaters. It's great to see Tom Cruise come on before and say, welcome to him. We made this movie for you, just like you did with Top Gun last year. I would say vote with your feet. Go see it in the theater. It's one of my favorites of the summer, if not the entire year. Sorry, had to say it. Stop. You don't have to apologize. I'm right with you. We're here for the popular summer megaplex movies, Michael. Exactly. This is because we're Midwesterners, I think. Like, this is just the universe we grew up in. We live for this stuff. Exactly. Go for opening weekend. Get to sit through 22 trailers of everything that's coming down the road. All right. Well, Michael, it's the weekend. I release you. Go out into the world, see things, do things, talk to people. And in the meantime, will you please read us out? I'm going to walk in the world. Remind you got the Women's World Cup starting, you got the Tour de France, lots to do, lots to see. But as Ashley says, click your heels three times and get out there in the world and have some adventures. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our coders are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe. 
and enjoy all of our stories on AML.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at AML Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.